All right. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing outstanding. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you would open it to the book of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Let's all take a collective uh, sigh and groan for the end of the summer. Welcome to real life again for most of us, except the lingering crew that are doing last-minute vacations. Uh, Do let me um, encourage us as a church family the importance of the next month or so in the life of our church and, in fact, the life of uh, every church. There are probably two stretches in the church calendar where we consistently see the most uh, new faces uh, sit in these seats each Sunday, and we're getting ready to enter one of those as school starts back, families re-engage with church. Many times uh, college students show up for the first time. That's going to begin to happen over the next several weeks. And I want to kind of re- ask you to rewind the tape in your life. And many of you are going to look back on a season in your late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, when you were in college, post-college, and you really began to engage in the gospel and the church for the first time, something quite significant happened in your life, and the trajectory changed quite markedly. I want to encourage you not to underestimate the significance that a word of kindness, an invite over for lunch one Sunday to a random college student you don't know, might have in shaping literally the trajectory of their life. We're led this morning in worship Uh, by young men who engaged our church during their time in college. And God is doing a significant work in their life that's going to send them somewhere in the future that we don't know. And by God's grace, our church played a role in that. We'll have an opportunity to do that for countless others over the course of the next several weeks. So here's your task. It is to demonstrate kindness, right? All right, we're going to apply our sermons. Be a blessing and benefit to those that come on Sundays. Here's what that means. That means get here early. Don't screech into the parking lot five minutes late. You can't bless or benefit anyone in that fashion, all right? Be here early. Smile. Even if you don't mean it, smile. I'm just kidding. Try to mean it, but definitely smile disengage from the people that you can talk to anytime and find a random face that you don't know, okay? Even if you meet them like I do for like the 18th time and you're like, dude, I don't know your name. I'm so sorry. It's going to be awkward, but awkwardness is okay. We're all awkward. So just run the risk of being awkward with somebody that you don't know and then find some way to bless. uh, Head to Five Guys. Go get some Mexican after church. Invite some strangers to go get some lunch with you. In that moment, in those 15 minutes, God can do a profound work in shaping the trajectory of people's lives. So please uh, be on the prowl in a good way uh, over the next month with those that God sends our way. We're going to get a running start into our passage from Galatians 5. I know that's not where I told you to turn, but if you're kind of drifting back into church after some summer scatter, we've been looking at the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And let's, uh, let's tag team our sermon from last week with this reflection, just a simple reflection. What are we doing when we listen to sermons week in and week out? Here's the way James says what we ought to be doing. We ought to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. 
So let's do a little seven-day rewind application. How did you do at being a doer of the word this week? How did you do at being a blessing and a benefit to those that God put in your life? And here's a bit of a diagnostic for you. If you say, man, I totally blanked. I did nothing intentionally to bless or benefit then the reasons that you find bubbling in your heart probably show you the sources of your lack of spiritual growth, okay? So I did nothing because I was just so stinking busy. And every day I got up, ran the race of work, and crashed into bed at night and thought about no one but myself. Then it probably reveals that busyness is an issue in your life. Whatever the... forgetfulness, all right? I just totally blanked. Then that probably tells you something about your active listening on Sundays, your note-taking, your quiet time with the Lord. You're allowing the Spirit to speak to you through the week. So, so again, this week, we're going to run after this one. We're doing practical sermon series over the summer, being a doer of the Word this week in the area of goodness, now, it is always a good, uh, good project if you're teaching the Bible or communicating truths about God to ask the question, well, who else has talked about these ideas? Because he, here's the deal. If you find me saying anything that nobody in the history of talking about God has said, then I'm wrong, okay? Every time. There's been a lot of people a lot brighter than me that have thought about things related to God and Christian worship for a really long time. So we always want to fact check back. So I did a little fact checking this week with one of the brighter bulbs in the Christian church today, a man by the name of Tim Keller, who pastored a church uh, in, outside of New York City, in defining these fruits. And here's the way Keller gets after defining the ones we've looked at thus far. And just so you know, I didn't cheat off Keller's paper, all right? So you're going to see some overtones that are very similar. Let's make sure. Yeah, beautiful. All right, love. To serve a person for their good and intrinsic value and not for what that person brings to you. Okay? Love is to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value and not what they bring to you. Joy. Delight in God and his salvation for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Peace, confidence, and rest in the wisdom and sovereignty of God more than your own. Patience, the ability to take trouble without blowing up, to take trouble from others or just life, the ability to suffer joyfully. Kindness, practical kindness with vulnerability out of a deep inner security. Now, if we were an English teacher and grading Mr. Keller's work at this point, we would give him a B minus. You can't define a term by using the same term in the definition, right? Kindness can't be practical kindness, but we'll give him a break. Uh, He's a smart bulb, so we'll give give him practical kindness, practical acts, maybe we would say, with vulnerability out of deep inner security. And this morning, goodness. Now, I'm not going to tell you Keller's definition of goodness, or else we would all be heading to brunch, and you would not enjoy the next 30 minutes of exposition from God's Word. So we're going to hold this definition, but let me say at the outset, running after defining this term is, is probably the most challenging of the nine fruits for, for this reason. Goodness um, is not expounded elsewhere in the Scriptures. 
If you take your concordance and try to find the other places where the notion of goodness is used, you don't find many examples. And the examples you don't find don't really tease out for us what the definition of this word is. And in fact, there are so many overtones and goodness of virtues that we've seen up to this point. It's a bit difficult for us to run after, well, what, what is Paul getting at when he says a fruit of God's spirit is goodness? So I began thinking this week, well, how do we hear these words used most often? Good or goodness would be one such word. So when I think of of good or goodness, one way we typically will use the word is on a scale of mediocrity, okay? So we put things on a scale of mediocrity and we say, that was a good cheeseburger, right? That means it wasn't an awesome cheeseburger, but it wasn't the worst I'd ever had. It was just good, right? Or that was a good movie. Not great, not terrible, but I'm probably not watching that bad boy again. It was just good. Or another way that we often use the word or the notion good is in funerals. And this is interesting. In a funeral, you will often hear someone say something like, reflecting on a person's life, He was a good man. Now, when we refer to someone that way as a good man, we're we're really saying one of probably three things. One, I didn't know the man at all, and I don't really know any way to describe him other than the bland good, right? Or we might use good to say, well, he wasn't like a murdering moonshine maker. He wasn't bad. He was good, okay? He avoided the big-ticket sins, he was good. Or, and this is the way I, I think it's used best, we might use good to refer to the sum total of that individual's life made him good. He was known for his goodness. If we were to put his life 40, 50 years on a highlight reel, we might say we would see consistent examples throughout this individual's life of a good life of a life well lived. And I think that is at the heart of what Paul is running after and why this this is a bit difficult for us to define because in many ways, goodness is the sum total of the virtues we've seen up to this point. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They add up, they draw an equal sign to this, this total package of goodness. But we've still got to go further to get after What is goodness? And if you've read your Bibles before, you might at the very outset say, well, I've got a challenge with this because it seems like Jesus spoke about this before. And in fact, he did. You remember the scene when encountered by a teacher of the law, we read in Mark 10, he was setting out on his journey and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, this is speaking uh, to Jesus, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So we have to ask the question right at the outset, was Jesus wrong or was Paul confused? Because it seems like here Jesus is saying, you can't be good, and yet Paul says for us to embody goodness. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you know that it's used by Mark in this collection of 
accusations made by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, against Jesus for this one one fundamental critique they had. They didn't mind the miracles that he did. They didn't mind the good teaching that he did. What really unnerved them, nauseated them, was when he professed to be God. When he held himself out as the miracle worker, not just a, a good miracle worker, but one who was God in the flesh. And so, in running at this definition, when this man says, good teacher, really what Jesus is addressing here is the fact that by his very statement, he is making the claim that nauseates him. He is saying, you are good, you are God. It's very similar to what Jesus does to Pilate when facing the crucifixion. When Pilate asks, are you the Christ? Are you God? And what does Jesus say? You're the one that said it, right? He spins it on his head. Jesus is doing a very similar thing here. He says, the young guy comes up and says, good teacher. And he says, no one is good but God. I, you are saying the very thing that you're actively denying. But he's also making another fundamental point about goodness that's important for us to distinguish. He's highlighting for us the fact that no one is, as a quality of being, good the way God is. Because of Adam's sin, Romans 5 will tell us, sin spreads, we are all born inherently opposed to God, an enemy to God, incapable of doing God-pleasing things. Therefore, Jesus, being the exact imprint of the nature of God, is the only one who is good, who is born good, is perfectly good, who consistently manifests this virtue. But that does not mean that you and I cannot be good. Notice this in Acts 11. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. The this there is that the gospel is spreading and Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, notice the connection here that Luke makes in speaking about Barnabas. He says that he was a good man. So clearly, it is possible for a man or a woman to be good. And what's the link here? He was a good man because what? He was full of the Holy Spirit. This runs at what we've been defining these fruits throughout this series. The reason we can embody the fruit is because of the Spirit of God who indwells us. So because Barnabas was full of God's Spirit, he could produce goodness, though he was not in and of himself good in the way that God was. We'll see this contrast, and it's important for us to distinguish these in, in really key places like Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, as a church that attempts to consistently teach the scriptures and hold forward the gospel defined as God's grace received by faith, that a church that has a high view of God's sovereignty, his provision, his care in saving his people. It is common for those that speak that way, that have a high view of God, to get a bit squeamish when we talk about the role of works in an individual's life. But I want you to notice the contrast here in the very same paragraph from Paul. He says, you're saved not by works, but in the very next sentence, you are saved for good works. Not by works, but for good works. So Paul doesn't have any inner squeamishness by pointing out for us the fact that our salvation is not attributed to our works, but we are very clearly saved in order to produce, by the power of God's Spirit, these good works. Or this parallel passage in Titus 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of the eternal, of eternal life. Now, if we stop there, notice, all God's activity, he's the one doing it. Paul goes to great lengths to point out this is not your own doing. It's not because of works done in righteousness. It's merely because of God's grace and mercy. He is the one who regenerates. He is the one who renews. He pours out the Holy Spirit richly through Christ Jesus. Therefore, we are justified by grace. We're made right in God's eyes because of his grace, and we become heirs according to the hope of the eternal. This is all apart from works done in righteousness. But Paul's thought continues. This saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So the demonstration for us of what Paul mentions up to that last sentence, of all of God's work in our life, apart from the things that we do, should manifest itself in the production of these good works. That by virtue of the fact that God has acted on our behalf, we can produce these things. An inexact metaphor might help, or picture might help to communicate this reality. Imagine that we... uh, we're heading into football season. We have an athlete, uh, five-star recruit, okay? He's a stud. Whipped everybody throughout high school, recruited from multiple programs, best of the best. Signs a letter of intent, steps out on the field the first game, and for the first four games of the season, he totally tanks. Miserably underperforms, does nothing 
to help the team achieve victory, and they go 0 for 4 in their first four games. The coach comes to that individual and sits down and says, son, you are a five-star athlete. Why in the world are you not helping us win? To which the athlete responds, coach, I'm not on the team because we win. Now, fundamentally, that athlete's statement is correct, isn't it? He's not on the team because they win. The winning didn't precede the making of the team. He made the team. But you would say to any quality five-star athlete, son, the fact that you made the team is so that you would help us win. That's the outcome that we're running after. Now, I said it was an inexact analogy because of two reasons. One, The kid had obviously done a lot of winning to make the team beforehand, which is what got him on the team in the first place. He was a really good high school athlete, and he made the team because he had a history of winning. This is not the way it works in our salvation, right? In fact, it seems like throughout the Bible, God goes to great lengths to point out, I actually saved you just to show off how good I am. I actually chose the least of these, the riffraff of the world, the foolish, to show off my greatness. So we certainly didn't have a history of winning that qualified us for God's team. And it's an inexact analogy because if dude keeps tanking, what's going to happen? He's going to get kicked off the team, right? Or he's going to be sitting on the bench watching somebody else play. So our works don't qualify us for God's team, And our works, our lack of production of works, don't get us kicked off of the team. But this same parallel holds true. God saves, and then he expects the production that would would demonstrate what he has done in our lives. And this is the nature of the gospel. Every human illustration breaks down because the gospel is too big for human illustrations. You can't really can't really capture grace. We don't, have an, uh, we don't have a picture of that. But we do see in this image the, the reality that we are, we are chosen, we are saved, we are placed on the team, and as a result, there is something that should naturally follow from that. Now our passage this morning in Luke 6, 43 through 45. And because uh, there isn't really a text that helps us get at goodness specifically. We're going to do a bit of an atypical style this morning and bounce around the scriptures a bit. So I'd encourage you, if you have a journal or your phone out, just to mark some of these passages to turn back to this week as you're reflecting on the notion of goodness. Here, Jesus uses a a picture for us that he also uses in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's gospel records it this way in Luke 6, beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there is a logical connection here 
in the text. We have a good tree producing good fruit and an evil tree producing evil fruit. This is the natural progression. If the tree is good, the treasure of the heart is good, and therefore goodness results. If the tree is evil, the treasure of the heart is evil, and therefore evil results. So, to begin at the, out, to begin at the beginning of this illustration, the good tree produces good fruit. So what does Jesus mean when he says a good tree? Well, clearly, because he's distinguishing here, he's not saying a good tree is good because of the fruit. That comes later. The definition of goodness, the definition of, of the good tree, right at the core, is what is in the, the heart of the individual. The good tree is defined by what is producing the fruit, either good fruit or evil fruit. And here we see that God consistently reminds us that the only way an evil tree becomes a good tree is for God to do a work in that tree. God has to fundamentally change it so that it can produce the good fruit. The good tree is produced, is made alive by virtue of the fact that God's Spirit dwells within it. And God's Spirit is good. We read this passage, Jason read it this morning in Psalm 145, but here again in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So what makes a good tree? A good tree is one in which a good God dwells. That, that is the only definition of a good tree. Good fruit comes later, but a good tree is one in which a good God dwells. And as we've seen throughout these fruits, we're reminded that God's Spirit dwells within us. The Spirit is the one producing the fruit. The Spirit is good. Therefore, good fruit should result. And we're reminded throughout the Scriptures that it is impossible for us to understand or to be able to equate the goodness of God with that which our eyes can see. This passage from Genesis 50, 20 is the parallel to Paul's uh, statement in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here we see in Genesis 50, 20, this is after the scene. You guys remember in Genesis 40 through 50, we have the story of Joseph's trials, thrown in prison, not remembered, brothers selling, all this stuff that happens. Brothers come after the famine to get grain. Joseph reflects on all these scenarios of his life that have taken a turn that perhaps he would not have drawn up. And he says, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. God is a good God who does good things. And this is then modeled and printed upon the person of Jesus, who is fully God. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good. Notice again the connection there. Jesus 
anointed with the Spirit, does good. So the Spirit of God working in the life of an individual is the definition of a good tree. Good is a quality of the tree, but good is also a characteristic of that tree. Good tree, good treasure, produces good fruit. Notice this contrast that the psalmist makes in Psalm 119. You are good and you do good. This is speaking of God, obviously. He is good and he does good. Now this, going back to Jesus' point earlier when speaking to the young religious leader, this will never be said of any of us. We're not good. God is good, and God dwelling in us can allow us to do good. So if you're here this morning and you're cut off from God, you haven't been saved by virtue of his grace, here's the bad news. You can't live a good life. It's fundamentally impossible. Do as much as you want, as much as you think is going to ultimately tip the scales in your favor. And if your heart has not been converted by God's Spirit, the ultimate outcome of your life will never be good. You can't do it apart from God's Spirit at work within you. But if a good God dwells within you, good can become a characteristic of your life. Because we have a promise in Romans 8, and here again in Galatians 4, that God is working to conform us to the image of Christ. Paul is laboring in Galatians 5 for the church until Christ is formed in them. That we would see this progressive growth in our life where these good works result. How does this happen? Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, here again, Paul defines the Christian life as one by virtue of the Spirit of God working within you should be zealous, passionate, motivated, get out of bed every morning with a desire to run after the good works that Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 2 says God has already prepared in advance that you should walk in them. And these good works are such that when we live in this way, an outside world should be able to see our good works and do what? They should be able to see our good works and glorify God. Why? Because the good works are being produced by God. They're just being produced by God through us. So if God's people are living in step with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, then the ultimate outcome of our good works isn't to heap human praise, but it's to deflect glory to God. God is the one acting through our bodies, if we are truly dead in Christ, to produce these things, these outcomes, good works in us. So how might we define goodness? 
their core goodness is actions that model the character of God, actions that model the character of God. So there we, we see we have this sum total effect. As we love, we're modeling the character of God. As we demonstrate patience, we're modeling the character of God. As we live in joy, we're modeling the character of God. I've noted there Matthew 23 because goodness is often seen in contrast to what Jesus runs after in Matthew 23. This is his famous chapter if you, in your Bibles. It's all red and like every other sentence is an exclamation mark because Jesus is taking jab after jab after jab at the Pharisees and tax collectors. This is his famous woe chapter. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. And throughout that passage, he says, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is disgusting. You whitewash the tombs, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. The contrast between goodness and hypocrisy. Goodness represents who you are on the inside and is produced out in a life that models the character of God. So here's the question then for us. How do we produce good fruit? If good fruit is the natural outcome of the life of the Christian, how do we train ourselves to produce good fruit? Paul, in one of his classic, really challenges for us to prioritize works in the life of a Christian, says it this way, don't you know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So don't run. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You would be hard-pressed to stand before Paul and say, hey, Paul, works don't matter. Paul's going to say, whoa, works don't matter in your salvation. The work that matters in your salvation is the work of Jesus on your behalf. But works do matter as an outcome of your salvation. And as a result, what do you do? Man, you discipline your body. You exercise self-control, characteristic we're going to see in a couple of weeks in order to build the habitual pattern in your life that produces these good works. I was one of the foolish, countless number of Americans who watched last week Michael Phelps race a great white shark, okay? Um, perhaps you were among the number of us, okay? So if you don't know, this was Shark Week. This is a classic in our home, probably the high watermark of TV viewing in the Rogers household. Michael Phelps, Olympic swimmer, was set out, I mean, for a year, they had, they had you know, done the commercials of Michael Phelps racing a great white shark. Now, it was a little bit of a, a Debbie Downer in the outcome, and if you're on social media, you watch people mock Michael Phelps racing because he actually raced a computer-generated image of a shark, that they had got his speed, and then they put him on the computer racing Phelps, and I think he lost by just a little bit. Now, I, I mean, I know people are throwing that under the bus, but I'm like, what, did, did people actually think dude was going to get in a lane next to a shark and swim against that bad boy? Like, how foolish do you have to be to think, 
A shark doesn't swim in a straight line. This is just, okay. So I was actually pretty impressed with this. But what impressed me the most about anyone like Phelps is the, the, what has the outcome that has been produced after years and years and years of exercising self-control and disciplining his body, right? I mean, I'm thinking the whole time I'm watching this deal. Like, you throw me in the water with that monofin or whatever dude was swimming with there, I'm not even sure I can go from here to the first chairs without drowning. I mean, I'm going to go, I'm going to sink to the bottom. You throw me in the ocean with sharks and ask me to swim. Michael Phelps is there. He's the dude who's racing the shark because he's disciplined his body. He's buffeted it. He's made it a slave so that he can produce things that are atypical from the rest of human population. Nobody is throwing Phelps in the water and saying, stroke, stroke, breathe, right? Like, he's got that. He naturally and habitually does what he's trained his body to do. Can the same be said for you in your production of good works? I think in an effort to do a really good thing, which is make much of the grace of God through Christ, and we need to do that, we can be guilty of minimizing the role that we play in our sanctification. As we live in step with the Spirit, don't quench the Spirit, discipline ourselves so that over time, it becomes possible for an individual to regularly, routinely produce godly actions out of a treasure of goodness in their heart that the Spirit has produced over time. It is a really tragic thing to watch someone age poorly and see at the end of their life, 60, 70 years, this storehouse of evil becomes manifest. How much more so would those of us in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s now get to the end of our life and say that the cumulative process of buffeting and disciplining my body has produced a life that is known for goodness. Not in a saving way, but in a clear evidence of what God has done in my heart. I think Kevin DeYoung says this incredibly well when he says, holiness is the sum total of a million little things. The avoidance of little evils and little foibles, the setting aside of little bits of worldliness and little acts of compromise, the putting to death of little inconsistencies and little indiscretions, the attention to little duties and little dealings, the hard work of the little self-denials and the little self-restraints, the cultivation of little benevolences and little forbearances. Are you trustworthy? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you joyful? Do you love? These qualities worked out in all of the little things in life. Determine whether you are a blight or a blessing to everyone around you. Whether you are an ugly spiritual eyesore or you're growing up into a good-looking Christian. Notice, it's the cumulative total of little bits of discipline add up over the cumulative total of one's life that produces this type of character. A Barnabas that can be known as a man who's good, filled with God's Spirit. 
So what might be the application for us this morning? Four points of application. If you want to grow in goodness, grow in producing the good works that God saved you for, first, that you would consider daily, consistently, the goodness of God. Daily, consistently, consider the goodness of God. This is what Paul reminds the church in Corinth to do. So we have our hope. We are very bold, not like Moses, who had to put a veil over his face, which, in fact, Moses went up to see the goodness of God, had to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when, the old, when we read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So again, we see this bookended. What is producing this outcome, this transformation? It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is training us to look to the Lord, to look to the grace of God, to look to the goodness of God, to behold the glory of the Lord. And when we do, what happens? We're progressively transformed from one degree of glory to the other. This verse is often used, this, the Spirit of the Lord is, and where the Spirit is, there is freedom. As a definition of, well, I can kind of do whatever I want to. There's freedom in Christ for me to run after whatever I want to. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at at all. I think what Paul is getting at is the kind of freedom that results from what Phelps has when he gets in the water. The freedom that comes from routinely and regularly disciplining yourself. The freedom that comes from knowing that the Spirit is at work in you to produce these things. And you routinely, naturally begin to model these good works. So what's the way to the little thing? It's to consider often the goodness of God. It's to consider the person of Christ. It's to behold the glory of God. And as you do, the Spirit is training your heart to pursue the type of goodness that he desires. Secondly, to devote yourself to goodness. Devote yourself to goodness. Titus 3, we've been throughout this book this morning. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Then a bit later in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So second step, second outcome is that we would live devoted to the good works that God puts before us. Often throughout the scriptures, goodness is going to be linked with generosity. Jesus does it here in Matthew 20 in the parable of the man who hires workers, one at the beginning of the day, one in the middle, and one with like an hour to go in the workday. 
and the guys come and they all get equal pay. And Jesus says, am I not allowed to do what, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? There the word is goodness. Do you begrudge my goodness? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So there is an active nature to this goodness that we would demonstrate it by doing things, doing actions that train our hearts to produce this goodness. Thirdly, that we would call others to goodness. That we would call others to goodness. Titus 2, that we would show ourselves in all respects a model for good works. If you've ever, if you, you, you've been a parent, you know this reality, like something happens if you know your kid's watching you. It's, it's weird, right? Like if I know my kid is watching me, then something fundamentally changes about the way that I'm thinking about my actions. The same is true in the life of the church. If you are consistently making disciples and parenting others, Something changes about you. If you're doing for another person what Paul does for his mentees and says, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, guess what happens in your heart? You start thinking, what model am I setting in my good works for this person who's following after me? So you want to grow, train yourself in the production of good works? Set an example and call others to follow that. Live in community with others in such a way that they see your goodness and are called to follow. And then lastly, persevere in goodness. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then Paul's going to define the everyone here more specifically, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So look around. You want a context for your goodness sitting in the seats around you. Let love be genuine. Abhor, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Now, here's the caution I want to leave you with. Both of these tell us something. The reason Paul has to write, don't become weary in doing good, is because good is hard. It doesn't come natural. The outcome of Genesis 3 is seen every time we put our hands to goodness. The fallenness of this world works against it. We will become weary. You're going to, at the end of a day, hearing kids ask 80,000 times, Mommy, can I? Mommy, should I? Daddy, can I? It's wearisome to model the character of God as a parent. It is wearisome in your work to model the character of God consistently by moral and upright actions. It is wearisome as a child to honor your parents, obey them as unto the Lord. These actions require consistent engagement with the Spirit of God, the grace of God, to produce this in us. You want to grow in your understanding and dependence on the grace of God? Try to pursue good works. They'll remind you quite quickly that apart from the Spirit of God at work in you, you are hopeless. But 
here's the good news. If you're in Christ, you do have the Spirit of God living in you. And because you have the Spirit of God living in you, the outcome can be a life marked by good works. May it be said of us at the end of our lives that someone could stand over us and say, that man, that woman, was good. Perhaps that's the hall water mark, uh, the high water mark of the life of a Christian, that we are, we're good, not because of any intrinsic value in us, but because of the Spirit of God has worked his transformative power in us over 40, 50, 60 years. Go, and let's be doers of the word this week as we pursue actions that model the character of God. Would you join me as we pray to close? And as we do, as we reflect, I want you to work through those four points of application. That you would begin by calling to mind the goodness of God. That you would reflect on his character and virtue as demonstrated to you. And then that you would consider what acts God has put uniquely before you where you can devote yourself to good works. Perhaps even today. What are, what are actions that would model the character of God, that would demonstrate a zeal for good works? That you would call those to mind. And then if you find yourself here this morning weary, that you would ask God by the power of his spirit in you to reignite a passion for the good works that he's saved you for. The end of some time of silent reflection, we will stand and sing of the one who is good and does good, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.